I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Hopefully you've been uh, getting these journals. If you haven't gotten one of these journals, we're in a series where we're walking through the back, the book of Matthew, and these journals have blank pages that would just cry and wait for you to write some notes, some reflections, and for you to follow along. We'd love for you to write your name in it. We've already had a couple of lost journals that don't know how to find their way home. And so we hope you'll write your name in it. You grab one. If you don't have one of these, please grab one after the service. William Center in the Narthex or over in the exit over here. We would love for you to be joining us and participating in this journey where we're discovering through the good news, the story, and the significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've started this, we've discovered that, that God in and through Jesus is making everything new and that he gives us a new kind of history. And then last week, a, a new kind of family. And this week, we're going to discover an entirely different identity than the one that we usually walk around with. And the other thing that I hope you're noticing as we're walking through this is that I told you that Matthew chapter 1, as they would have originally heard it with the repetition of Genesis, 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 that, that this was new beginning, this was a new creation, and that, that Jesus who was coming was beginning something new. And then last week, and it's not subtle, we got into the second chapter, and Jesus goes all the way back with the Holy Family, goes all the way back to Exodus. And there's even the, the echoes of what happens in that story. And so chapter one of Matthew is all about Genesis being recast and reborn, and that chapter two of Matthew is all about Exodus. And I'm gonna give you a guess. What do you think the third chapter of Matthew is? Leviticus, you had to reach back a little further to get to that third book of the Bible, right? And let's be clear that it's Genesis and then it's Exodus and then it's Leviticus after that. But, but Leviticus is one of those books where people do those Bible reading plans and you start reading and you make it through Genesis and Exodus and you get Leviticus and you're like, I'm out. Leviticus is all about the holiness of God. And I know that if we're going to be able to see the overlay of what Matthew does in laying over Jesus' life as him as the fulfillment of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, I know I'm going to have to reintroduce you to what holiness is all about. This is an image of one of the more significant healthcare hospitals in our country in terms of its prestige. This is Duke University Healthcare System. And in this particular um, hospital, there were some necessary elevator repairs that were needing to be done. And these were repairs that were going to need to be done system-wide to make sure that all of the elevators were not only up to code, but that they were safe. And so what they were having to do is they were having to drain all of the hydraulic fluid out of all of the mechanics of the elevators. And in order to do this, they used some empty uh, kind of bins that they had found. Well, it turns out that those bins were empty from used kind of cleaning materials, particularly detergent materials that were used to clean surgical instruments. And so they put them in these old bins and then they put them to the side and they made the repairs and then through a, a series of strange and unfortunate events, those bins that were now full, those containers got reused, and for 4,000 patients in over a couple of weeks, they were using hydraulic fluid to clean 
medical equipment instead of detergent. Your reaction to that story is the appropriate reaction to that. It's, that's not right. That's not okay. That's bad. And that is the reaction that we are supposed to have when we come into something that is unholy. Using hydraulic fluid to clean medical equipment is an act of unholiness. So here's what holiness is. Holiness is using the right things for the right particular uses that they were meant and designed for. And what we're about to experience today through Matthew chapter 3 is God calling us back to a holy life. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to start reading in the first verse. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We encounter here the beginning, John the Baptist saying a word that sometimes makes us cringe a little bit, in the same way that the word holiness is often misconstrued and misunderstood, so is the word repent. And so let me see if I can reintroduce you to the concept of repentance. And by doing that, I want to share with you the newest member of the Conwisher family. Towards the end of last year, because we are about to become empty nesters in eight months, we decided to get a new puppy. This is Dallas, named not for the city of Dallas, but for Dallas Willard, who you hear me quote all the time from the pulpit. Let me show you a couple of pictures here of Dallas. This is just gratuitous showing off at this point. Little Dallas right now is nine pounds, and the vet thinks that he is at his full fighting weight at nine pounds. He is precious and proof that God loves us and makes us want to be happy. So I'm walking with Dallas, and he's still figuring this out. I'm on a walk, got him on the leash, and he's walking on the left-hand side as he's supposed to be as we're doing the training. And I notice as we're walking on this one particular occasion that there is a pole and that he is not noticing the pole. Normally, Dallas does a good job of going to the right side of the pole. Dallas does not go to the right side of the pole. He goes to the left side of the pole. As he goes to the left side of the pole, and I'm on the right side of the pole, all of a sudden, his leash kind of whips around that pole, and Dallas turns and gets caught, and then his instinct is to keep running ahead because he's scared. And so what he does is he gets caught on the pole and then runs forward instead of backward, and in doing so, Dallas wraps himself around the pole a couple of times and is stuck and looks at me with these big eyes and that he can't breathe to which I had to untangle him. Here's why I tell you that story. The word repent that originally comes from the Hebrew, which is shuv, means to turn back. Repentance is not about feeling sorry for yourself. It is not feeling bad about yourself. Repentance is recognizing that you were wrong and that the only way to get out of the tangle that you are in is to stop 
and to turn around and to go back. God's people in Israel needed to stop. They needed to turn around and they need to go back. And my guess is, is that we in our society today need to do the same thing. Individually, you might be thinking of some things that you need to do to turn around. We as a society definitely have some things that we need to repent of, that we're going in the wrong direction, and that we need to stop and we need to turn around. When you look at the anger and the violence, and the unfairness, and the difficulties and the struggles for so many people today. We really need to stop and not try to keep running forward, which is just gonna keep tangling us up. We need to stop and repent, which means we need to change our minds and turn around in order to figure this out. And so the first thing that John the Baptist does, repent, God's kingdom has come near, and then he uses another image here, an image that is strange to us, that comes to us from the prophet Isaiah in in calling the people back from exile. He's talking about a king that is coming back and that we need to make straight his path. So what on earth does that mean? Well, according to New Testament scholar Tom Wright, the closest equivalent that we can think of with this is to think of a presidential motorcade. When the president comes to a town or an area, what we do is we make straight the president's path. We make straight by being able to stop all the traffic. Wouldn't you love to be able to have a motorcade getting you where you needed to go in Atlanta traffic every day? How good would that be? Making straight the path of the president is the closest modern analogy to what God is saying that we need to do. That even in the wilderness where there is no road, we need to make straight a path for the king to return to us as individuals as well as a society. So two images right out of the here at the beginning is is John is calling us back to a holy life. He is saying, first, you need to stop and you need to turn around. And then secondly, he's saying that the king is coming, his reign is coming, and that we ought to welcome that with open arms and we ought to prepare the way, we ought to make straight the path for God to come into our hearts and our lives. Let's keep reading in verse four. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to read this uplifting scripture that has to do with this? So after telling us to repent that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, after telling us to make sure that there is a straight path, a highway, John turns up the warning and the rhetoric here. Now we have to try to understand who John is. Who John is, is that he is from his clothes wearing a camel's, camel's hair jacket. 
And so this is, uh, this is what it has evolved over the years. So on the left, you have John the Baptist, and on the right, you have Brooks Brothers. And this is how this is, this is unfolded. We, we read a camel's hair jacket, and we think that's really strange um, attire. They would have heard that, and they would have understood that both by what he was wearing and by what he was eating, that this is allusions to John entering into the role and the tradition of the prophet Elijah. Elijah, who was warning the people about what they needed to do in order to be able to return to God. Now, the, the story takes place here in an area that's not conducive to going on a retreat. This is, this is not like going to a nice area. This is going into the wilderness. And I want to show you a picture about probably the best guess that we can think of as to where this takes place. Because what is taking place here is not just any place in the wilderness. It's happening at the Jordan River, likely happening at the place that they would have visited and revisited over and over again as to the place at where they crossed into the Jordan River, through the Jordan River, into the Promised Land to begin with. In doing this, in other words, this was not a retreat, this was renewal. John was calling the people to come back to the renewal of the promise of them entering into the promised land for the first time. He's calling them to remember. And in doing this, there's a specific act where when they crossed here, they, 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 they stacked these stones. They would have taken large stones like these, one from each of the tribes of Israel to form a monument. Once they entered into the promised land, they, their first act of celebration and of commemoration was to stack those 12 stones. This happens in the book of Joshua in order to commemorate their unity and that they were coming together as God's people. So don't miss this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who, who know better with all of this, are kind of there standing and scoffing and criticizing John. And John says to them, you better not think of yourselves, and the key word you ought to, to underline in your Bible is the word presume, because presumption, particularly in the religious life, is something that's incredibly dangerous. You ought not to presume that because you are Abraham's offspring, that you are his children, that you have it all together. Because in fact, God could turn these stones, pointing to stones along the River Jordan, he could make children out of them. In other words, John is using performance art, digging back into the story to not allow us to stand in our own presumption and our own hypocrisy. And the other image that John uses to confront here is the image of fruitfulness. The first command that God gives to us as humans in chapter one is to be fruitful and multiply. The symbol of them coming into the promised land was that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was not the honey of bees, it was the honey of figs, of those different types of fruit. We are called to be fruitful based out of the promises of what God has done for us. And when we don't live that holy life, 
the response of God, though it makes us uncomfortable, not just Old Testament, New Testament, is anger. To which Dale Bruner, a biblical scholar, says this. The wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It is the love of God in friction with injustice. It is the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest selfishness. God's wrath does not contradict God's love. It proves it. A love that pampers injustice is not lovable. Where the holy character of God and so of God's people is lost, the gospel sinks. The love of God turns insipid and the people of God saltless. And so what John is doing, he's beckoning us to turn back. He's telling us to make a straight path for God, the King, to enter into our lives and our communities. And then he's giving us a series of warnings about our unholy life, that we were called to bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And when we don't do that, God gets angry. And we are, when we are hypocritical and presumptuous that, well, we're God's children, so it's totally fine. We can do whatever we want. God's anger, which is a manifestation of his love, derivative of his love, that God's anger is kindled. And so let's continue reading in verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This agricultural image of throwing the grain up in the air and letting the wind take and separate what is good for living and what is unnecessary and burning what is unnecessary to purify and to maintain what is good. When I was a child, my family used to go on vacation once a year to a family that we knew who had a farm. We were city dwellers and didn't know much about the farm and oftentimes they would let us invite another couple and go and stay at their farm. And so we would go and it was great for me to be a young boy and to have room to roam in the great outdoors. I remember this one day that we got to the farm and we had just gotten there and been cooked up in the car for a little while and there was another friend, another boy who was there as well. And as soon as we got there, there's this big field right in front of the house. And and as soon as we got out of the car, we took a football and we started throwing the football back and forth in the field and we're running around and we're tackling each other. And being the city boy that I was, I did not understand that in the field that there were these different little mounds. I just thought they were little piles of dirt of something. And so I stepped in some of these trying to catch a ball. I remember even at one point tripping and falling and rolling through one of these. And then I looked down at my clothes and felt the pinch, pinch of getting bitten all over my body that I was covered in fire ants. 
I started to scream. A manly scream, I'm sure, but I started to scream. <laughs> and one of the other adults who was there saw me and saw that I was panicking. And he ran over to me and he grabbed me with his big arms and he picked me up and he held me and ran with me, holding him, me holding on to him as he tossed me into the swimming pool. And I watched all of the little fire ants just float away. The controlling image of Matthew chapter 3 is baptism, where we are submerged in the waters that save us. In today's modern world and in today's modern preaching, we lose some of the urgency of the bathing that we need, that we need to be spiritually made clean, that our lives are a mess and that we are in danger, and that we need the washing in order to be made whole. Baptism existed before Jesus, but the bathing that Jesus recasts is one of the Holy Spirit entering in. It's not just water. It's the Spirit's present and fire for us to be purified and to be reminded of whose we are. So let's take a closer look starting at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What a strange thing. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Jesus says in order to fulfill all righteousness that he needs to do this. That doesn't make sense. Isn't baptism about the rescue for forgiveness? Righteousness is a fancy word that means to be made good all the way from the inside out. And to fulfill righteousness of goodness going all the way inside and out, in order that to be true for you and me, you know what Jesus does? He enters into the death and the loss and the sinfulness of us so that we know and can experience what grace really is. That we can experience a new identity that's beyond what the prophets can proclaim. Because Jesus is the king and he's come. And in his reign we are made new citizens and have a new identity where the heavens are open to us. Where the spirit descends to us. 
in the form of a dove. Remember dove from Genesis, peace, wholeness, newness, life. And the Father claiming Jesus and in his baptism that is given to us, you, beloved, don't miss this, holiness finds its ultimate beginnings in belovedness. This last year at the Masters, Scotty Scheffler won in a spectacular fashion and in a fashion that was unusual because he showed a higher level of emotions and was willing to be transparent about his fears more than golfers usually are. His wife that is shown in this picture here after he won played a key role in reminding him what was going on. And in his post-victory press conference, Scotty Scheffler said this, the reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and all that he has done in my life. So for me, my identity isn't a golf score. Like my wife Meredith told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you and you're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. What happens in your baptism and mind is not just that we turn our lives around. What happens in your baptism and mind is not just that the way is clear for the king to come. What happens in your baptism in mind is not just that there are warnings that there are heeded and not just that the fire is quenched and that the waters cleanse. What happens at baptism is we discover and we rediscover that we belong to God. When you win, when you lose. When you fail, when you succeed. Do you know that you are God's beloved child no matter what? One of the practices of the Christian tradition is the practice of confession. Confession is something you need to do individually. It's something that we need to do together. Confession is being reminded that we have been told a pack of lies about ourselves and the world that we live in. And that the one true king in Jesus Christ has made us his own. And what you need to understand is, is that if we are going to heed the serious and devout call to a holy life, it starts in our belovedness. And in the rhythm and the practice of grace, of admitting that we're wrong, and standing on God's grace. Biblical commentator by the name of D.A. Carson puts it like this. People do not drift toward holiness. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost, 
self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. People do not drift toward holiness. And so stop drifting. And instead, join me in the waters of the Jordan River so that the heavens will open for you. The Spirit will give you peace. And you can hear the voice of your Father saying, You're loved. You're loved. So let us pray. Lord, we're reminded in your word that if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're reminded that if we say that we have no sin, we are calling you a liar. But Father, if we confess our sins, you are the one who is always faithful, always just, always merciful, and you will cleanse us of all that is broken and untrue in our hearts. And so help us in this moment, O God, to heed once again your call to holiness. Forgive us for taking the wrong things and using them in the wrong way. And may we hear the confrontation of what it means to be warned to to stop, to turn around, to repent. To make our lives a straight path for your kingship to enter into us. Forgive us for our hypocrisy and our presumption like that of the religious leaders of long ago. Help us to know that our identity that comes from you is, is not rooted in, in what we think, but in the fact that your love is everlasting. God, our lives are covered in fire ants and we need the waters of baptism right now. Make us good from the inside out. Enter into our hearts. Descend into our lives. Open your heavens once again. Give us peace. And help us now to claim a holiness that comes from your belovedness. We will not drift, O God. We will not drift towards holiness. And so make this act of worship a moment where your grace becomes sufficient for us once again. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, and I remind you now that in Jesus Christ, as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed your transgressions from you, that in Jesus Christ, that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That in Jesus Christ, everything can be made new, that the old is gone and that the new is come. And so friends, in Jesus Christ, hear and heed and believe the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, you and I can be forgiven and are forgiven as we are his beloved. Let's rise to our feet and sing with a renewed vision of our identity.